Clancy Pasta presents, I used to star in a children's television show, and I wish I had never discovered that I still have fans. Written by Peace Sim. Andy Warhol, or more accurately, a photographer working with him, said not too long ago that everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Centuries earlier, the expression nine days wonder captured the same concept with a bit more optimism. I beat them both out. I was famous for four years. As prominent actors on children's shows go, that's not a bad run. I remind myself of this during the restless periods I spend checking my phone for a call from my agent as empty beer bottles pile up around me. You see, I starred in a kid's television show for three years called Lucian and the Lilicrank. It's a show that little kids love. Each episode would consist of me wearing a goofy black hat, an orange shirt, and a ridiculous dark purple cape, going on adventures with a computer-generated creature. I was Lucian, and the creature was Lilicrank. My character existed to connect the audience to the show through a human protagonist. I was chosen for the role because of my youthful face and my uncanny ability to endure grueling 15-hour shoots. Lilicrank resembled a sheep, but had wings that allowed her to fly around like a dragon. She looked fearsome enough to be cool, while also retaining a sense of cuteness. If you raised a kid in the last decade, you may have seen plush toys of her in stores. Anyway, Lilicrank would fly me around as we solved mysteries, visited magical kingdoms, and interacted with guest stars, all while teaching lessons to kids. At one point early in each episode, I would receive news that Lilicrank was needed somewhere, so I would call out for her, chanting, The danger is real. This is not a prank. We need your help, Lilicrank. She wouldn't appear at first, so I'd turn to the camera and request the audience to sing along, and only then would she actually appear. Of course, this made for a sad spectacle in the studio. I'd beg the camera to sing along, and even though nothing was happening, I'd pretend like an audience had spoken up with sufficient volume. But, as our ratings indicated, hundreds of thousands of kids were following my instructions and were swept away by the appeal of me and the friendly dragon sheep. But, I could always sense such success would be short-lived. Before long, the kids had moved on. The original audience had grown up and started to enjoy the books and movies from which we'd borrowed ideas, and the next generation of preschoolers had found fresher, newer shows to watch. Worse, even though Lucian and Lilicrank was cancelled four years ago, I was forever pegged as the guy from that kid's show. Nobody else in the industry wanted to hire me because audiences would only associate me with that one character. At first, I found plenty of gigs performing at rich kids' birthday parties. I brought a prop blow-up Lilicrank that, with proper setup, would float briefly in the air, open its mouth, and appear to make some of its signature sounds with the help of a hidden stereo system. I'd wear an approximation of my costume from the show, with the waistband let out a little bit to account for the weight I'd gained, and put on a short sketch using a few props, and then just interact with the kids, telling some jokes and doing amateurish magic tricks. The kids often loved it, but the whole ordeal felt ridiculous to me. To make matters worse, on a few occasions, parents had hired me for parties for kids who they hadn't realized no longer liked the show, and the kids proceeded to pelt me with birthday cake, 
and anything else at their disposal. But, having failed to find any acting success elsewhere, I needed the money. So, I kept accepting whatever work I could find. I bring up all this backstory to explain what my life was like when I got a particular offer, one that raised red flags that would have caused anyone else to turn it down. The email arrived on a Sunday morning and asked for my services the next evening. This was a bit odd, as most of my performances took place on weekend mornings or afternoons, and most offers were made well in advance of the date of performance, but I took little notice. The writer, who did not include his or her name, offered me $5,000 for one of my live appearances at a house with a zip code that I vaguely recognized as being within a nice part of a suburb about an hour south of me. The mention of $5,000 for one performance obviously caught my eye. I usually only charged a couple hundred. Excitedly, I responded right away with my usual pretensions about having a busy schedule, but luckily, being able to work this appearance in due to a recent cancellation. I asked how I would be paid, if there would be a good power source, or if I needed to bring my portable generator, and how long my act should be. I got a response less than a minute later that read simply, Cash. We will provide what you need, as long as necessary. Arrive at 8pm. I asked a couple follow-up questions, but received no further response. This was obviously not how the booking process usually worked, but ever since I dropped to being only one of dozens of clients to my agent, I've had to improvise. Still, it was odd being paid such a high amount in cash, and odder still to be appearing relatively late on a weeknight. Look, I get that going to a house alone at night is something no smart person should do, and the unusually large promised payment only raised additional suspicions. I thought about whether this was some elaborate plot to rob or kidnap me, but the location was in a safe part of town, and I wanted both the money and the reinforcement of the sense that I deserved it. So I spent Monday afternoon gathering my costume and props, and drove out in the early evening. As my GPS brought me to a pristine residential neighborhood, I saw familiar sights of parents walking their dogs, and kids played basketball in the streets. My GPS guided me through several turns until I was driving up a heavily wooded hill to another branch of the suburb. Finally, I saw the street I was looking for, Peakview Drive. The road took me slightly downhill to a flat elevated area with seven or eight additional houses arranged in a loop. Above the tree line, the descending sun left a red sky. The homes here were similar to the ones below, but a strange stillness gripped the cul-de-sac they surrounded. I parked my car in front of the address I'd been given, and when I got out, I took note of a general silence abated only by the whispers of a distant breeze. There were no parents, children, or pets, and certainly no idyllic white picket fences. The houses had undecorated exteriors and empty front yards. The missing cat poster added to the gloomy setting that started to put me in an ominous mood. I knew I had to fight against that. I was about to put on an act that required me to be earnest and enthusiastic while wearing laughable clothes and interacting with props. This appearance would be like most, I told myself, with gawking kids circled around me and entertained by my performance. 
A white van then approached from the same direction I had taken and parked behind me. Oh great, I thought to myself. My kidnapper has arrived. Instead, a short, thin woman in a faded blue uniform stepped out. Her van showed that she was a plumber, and she carried an appropriate toolkit. She looked me over and smirked. This your place? she asked. No, I said. I'm just here as a hired performer. She laughed. That explains the outfit. I tried not to act offended. Yes, I suppose I look a bit silly. Especially if you've never seen this sh- She cut me off. Got a call from the city to check out a potential water leak here, she said. I've been running around doing jobs all day. Hopefully this one won't take too long, and I can get back home at a decent hour. She trudged past me and walked up to the front door. I finished putting on my costume, forced a cheery smile on my face, and carrying a large box full of props, followed her path. The colonial-style house before me seemed innocuous enough. It was plainly designed and no different from the homes I'd passed on my way up. On the second floor, several large windows jutted out. I saw odd specks of light in one, but when I squinted to look more closely, its blinds abruptly tightened. I knocked on the door. A woman opened it only a moment later. She was as tall as me and maybe in her mid-forties. Her sandy hair was slicked back and she had clear green eyes. Lucien, at your service, ma'am, I called out, grinning. If you can direct me to the right location, I can start setting up. Come in, she said in a monotone voice. Call me Stacy. As I stepped inside a hallway, I saw a staircase to a basement that the plumber had begun to descend. Good luck, magic man, she said, winking and twirling a ring of keys Stacy must have given her as she walked out of sight. A most unpleasant surprise, Stacy said as she motioned me toward a door at the end of the hallway. The plumber? I asked. She said the city sent her. It's probably a good thing. Stacy didn't respond or even look in my direction. We passed a compact, clean-looking kitchen as we continued down a long, wood-lined corridor. Your email didn't give me a lot of details, I said, and I was hoping you could answer a few quests. She interrupted as she opened the door. Set up on the stage. You will come when you are ready. Before me was an elevated platform surrounded by fancy seats arranged into neat rows. I hadn't imagined that this house could contain a formal auditorium like this. How many kids were going to be here? It looked like there was enough seating for several dozen, at least. I heard the door close behind me and noticed that Stacy was gone. This all made me feel odd and uncomfortable. Stacy had been uninterested in me or my questions. Usually there were dozens of children noisily running around any home or backyard where I was about to perform, but today I hadn't seen anyone aside from Stacy and the plumber. The whole house had been totally silent since I arrived, and it isn't exactly common for a house to contain a room this large. I wondered, too, in what sort of situation would enough kids attend to fill it up on a Monday night?
but I was already here, an hour from home and with my costume and gear, so I decided to go ahead with the performance. No matter how badly things went, I would drive off $5,000 richer, and that was all the motivation I needed. I set up the Lillicrank props, both the blow-up version that could make sounds and the plush version I would let the kids pass around at the end, and the speaker system. The last thing I needed to do was plug the speaker system into a power outlet. As I did this, everything around me turned pitch black. My eyes slowly adjusted to the darkness, and I started to discern lights in the distance. My heart trembled at the sight before me. Dozens of pairs of striking, luminescent green eyes lit up where the seats should be located. It was like being watched by the glowing eyes of animals, eyes that never blinked. Suddenly, the green eyes faded out of my vision as a blinding bright light enveloped the stage. My own eyes had to readjust, and once they did, I could see the stage before me well, but the audience and their striking eyes were shrouded in darkness. Start, said Stacy firmly. Her green eyes caught my attention more than they did before. I panicked. Everything around me felt so wrong. What was going on? What children have glowing eyes, and why were they all the same color? My mind ran through excuses I could say to leave. Money be damned. I could claim I felt sick, or even that I had stage fright. Whatever it took, I wanted to get out of that house. Now, Stacy said. I could see the green eyes emerging again from the darkness. They cast a stronger color than before. They were somehow getting brighter, angrier. I said, now. The dozens of eyes now transitioned from green to a hot, fiery orange. I sensed that an undesirable outcome awaited me if I failed to perform. I delved within myself for the earnest spirit that landed me the job on the show and, mustering my strength, put on a smile and started my routine. As soon as I started playing my character, the luminescent eyes faded from orange to green, and then they receded again into the darkness. For the first few minutes of lighthearted jokes and magic tricks, I heard no response from the audience. Aside from Stacy, who sat close by and half illuminated by the stage light, I felt like I was performing to a totally empty room. Finally, it came time for me to call in Lillicrank. I yelled out the key phrase. The danger is real. This is not a prank. I need your help, Lillicrank. I then looked at the audience and asked for them to chant the rhyme with me. Usually the kids enjoyed this part of the act and enthusiastically joined in, but my call was met with total silence. Without a single voice joining me, I wasn't at all sure what to do or how to proceed. I froze. A moment passed. Continue, said Stacy unsympathetically. I sensed unease in the eerily silent room. Behind Stacy, I saw the rows of eyes light up once more. Continue, 
Stacy repeated. I swallowed. Taking a deep breath, I whispered to her, they have to repeat the rhyme with me. Stacy looked surprised. Repeat the rhyme? Yes, I said. Hadn't they seen the show? Oh, wait one moment, she said. She left my line of sight and entered the endless dark void that surrounded me. I felt sweat drip down my face. More and more sets of green eyes appeared all over the room. Instead of dozens, there now seemed to be hundreds, yet I could hear no noise aside from the throbbing of my heart. Stacy returned to her seat. Do it again, she said. Say it, then ask them to join in. My eyes grew wide in disbelief. What was happening? What was Stacy doing in the darkness, and how long did this have to go on? The danger is real. This is not a prank. I need your help, little crank, I whimpered. Then I again instructed the audience to join me. A deafening wave of sound followed, as the thundering echo of a hundred voices hollered back, The danger is real. This is not a prank. They spoke mechanically, and in perfect unison as they finished the chant. The utter joylessness of their collective voice disturbed me. It obviously sounded nothing like discordant voices of young fans of the show that I was used to hearing. I proceeded, tugging at a string I had set up and causing the inflatable Lilikring prop to float on stage. Normally the little kids would laugh and delight at this, but naturally, all that greeted it now was uninterrupted silence. I pressed a button on a remote control hidden in my pocket that turned on the audio system. Gentle kids' music started playing, punctuated with some of Lilikrank's signature sounds. The glowing eyes again appeared, and I could tell that they were growing fiery once more. Maybe it was just my imagination, or maybe I was beginning to lose balance from nervousness, but I'd swear that I felt the stage surface shaking, as if the room itself was angry with me. We don't like this yelled Stacy. Turn the music off. Turn it off. My shaking hands took hold of the remote and returned the room to silence, bringing about another sense of relative calm. What was happening? Is there anything else we need to do? asked Stacy, noticing my hesitation. Should we laugh, clap, or chant again? Um, no, I responded. Then continue, said Stacy. Now. Stacy, I have to stop, I stuttered. I can't do this anymore. Are you refusing to complete your performance? Stacy asked, seemingly offended. My brain ran through every lie I could think of, trying to find one that would work. I... I need to... I need to get a drink of water, I said. That's it, I thought. I'll step outside for just a second, and then I'll get the hell out of here, never to return. They haven't paid me. It's not like I'll have stolen anything. 
I'll just leave and then I'll figure out what to do next. Stacy looked at me suspiciously. Then she stepped into the darkness. A moment later, a glimmer of light appeared down the center of the room, between the rows of seats, making out a path between the stage and the door. This way, said Stacy, standing by the exit. We are waiting. It took substantial effort to restrain myself from sprinting away. Instead, I walked slowly out of the room, trying my best to appear calm. Once I closed the door behind me, leaving Stacy and whatever else was in the mini-auditorium out of sight, I saw no need to maintain the ruse. I sprinted to the front door and frantically pulled the handle. It was locked. I felt panic rush through my head. Sweat stained my orange shirt. I turned the lock again and again, clueless as to whatever else I could do. Then I remembered the plumber and the key set. Surely, if I found her, I could convince her to let me out of the house. I knew I had to move fast, lest the inhabitants of the auditorium come looking for me. So, downstairs I went. The first room in the basement was large, clean, and mostly empty. At one end, I saw what looked like a small laundry room. Guessing that the plumber could be there, I flipped on a flickering light and looked inside, where I saw only a toolkit next to a dripping pipe by a washing machine. Hello, I said, trying to be loud enough that anyone in the basement could hear me, but not so loud as to alert anyone upstairs. Hearing no response, I walked to the only other door, one that I guessed would go to the area underneath the auditorium. What I found upon opening the door sent shockwaves through me. The first thing I saw was the plumber on the floor only a few feet away from me. More specifically, it was the top half of the plumber. Her figure from the waist down was nowhere to be seen. Red, web-like ooze covered her head and torso and wherever the substance touched, her pale skin bubbled and disintegrated. I assumed she was dead, but suddenly her grimacing face looked up at me and attempted to scream, but all I could hear was a muffled, gargling sound. Suddenly, a strand of gelatinous ooze expanded into her mouth and rapidly tightened, and whatever tiny bit of life remained in the plumber faded as her head collapsed onto the floor. I felt myself about to belch, but transfixed in horror, looked behind her. The sentient web-like structure filled the whole room. Tendril-like appendages stretched up to the ceiling and moved in no ascertainable pattern. Beneath them, scattered throughout the room, were bones, mostly human bones, as far as I could tell. It resembled a crypt or an ancient mass grave looking for me. I heard a female voice behind me ask. The sound, which I quickly recognized, shook me so deeply I felt convinced my life was about to end. I turned around to see the same plumber standing upright and seemingly unhurt. But something about her was different. She now had striking green eyes that cast a slight glow. You are supposed to be teaching the children, she said. 
I, I got lost, I said. Impulsively, I backed up. I heard a crunching sound and glanced down to see that I had stepped on the hand of the plumber. Not the plumber before me, but the plumber I had just seen being devoured by the web-like substance. The hand shriveled up and collapsed beneath the weight of my foot. You aren't supposed to be here, the plumber said, edging closer to me. Not yet. I winced suddenly as an incredible feeling of pain shot through my body. A sharp pink tendril had shot into my ankle. I saw blood spill out on the floor as I yanked my foot away and shook the tendril off. The plumber lunged at me, but at that moment I was already shifting my weight towards her to get away from the tendril. Deftly, I crouched and dived to where the plumber had just been standing, narrowly dodging her as she flew over me. I looked behind me and saw the plumber land on a layer of the web on top of her other body. She screamed in pain as the tendrils held her down and the pink web encased her, tearing through her skin in a checkered pattern. Next to her, I began to see a new bubbly figure form in a puddle of pink goo next to her. The slimy substance changed color, coalescing into a human shape, a shape that donned a gray uniform. I knew better than to wait any longer. Ignoring the pain, I looked around again for the key set and spotted it at last behind the toolbox in the laundry closet where I had missed it earlier. I grabbed the key set and hobbled up the stairs, never looking behind me. When I reached the front door, I frantically began the process of finding the right key to unlock it. After the first key didn't work, I dropped the chain to the ground in my nervousness. Picking it up, I chanced to glance down the hall, but no one was there and the door remained shut, but I wasn't sure how much longer it would stay that way. I tried different keys until I finally found one that worked. The pain in my ankle continued to assert itself, but I had too much adrenaline in me to care. Pulling the door open, I hurried outside. The cul-de-sac was no longer vacant. It was filled now with children. They all had the same phosphorescent green eyes that shined in the darkness of the evening. The kids weren't running around and playing, just standing still, engaged in expressionless observation of me. I felt a strong hand grip my shoulder from behind. You can't leave now, said Stacy. I tried to rush away, but Stacy's hand held me firmly. I turned and shoved her. She hit the ground. I didn't think she landed too hard, but she lay totally still for a moment, as if seriously hurt. The eyes of the children around me began changing once again from green to fiery orange. Meanwhile, Stacy's body started contorting. It convulsed, and as she stood up, took an entirely inhuman, twisted form as her neck stretched to an impossible length and drooped down her side leaving her head and its fiery eyes dangling as she stumbled forward at me. I ran in my car as fast as I could and climbed inside. The children now were all moving towards me, slowly and steadily. The danger is real, they chanted again and again in unison. The danger is real. The danger is real. 
the pace of their words and the movement increased. In my rearview mirror, I caught a glimpse of one of the children with what appeared to be sharp, cat-like teeth emerging from his mouth, and he shrieked in anger at me. Behind him stood the plumber again, unhurt and with orange eyes burning fiercely in my direction. After turning the car on, I floored the accelerator. When I reached the stop sign at the end of the street, I could still hear the chanting behind me approaching. I sped through the rest of the suburb and drove for hours on the interstate in no particular direction before I calmed myself down enough to seek medical treatment and contact the authorities. When I returned with the police the next day, what I found matched the information the officers had provided me, information I had frantically rejected as impossible and untrue. The houses along the cul-de-sac on Peakview Drive were vacant. Construction had finished in this area, but the houses had not yet gone on sale. When I arrived, the house where I had only 12 hours earlier endured a horrifying experience now bore little resemblance to how I remembered it. In fact, there was no door at the end of the main hallway, much less an auditorium beyond it. Further, the basement lacked a room directly underneath where the auditorium had been. The room where I saw so many bones, as well as some kind of amorphous creature devour a woman twice, was simply gone. And to further impede my efforts to get the police to believe my story, the plumber appeared to be in perfectly good health. The city water authority confirmed that it sent her to fix a mild water leak in the basement of the house, and she reported back to work the next morning without any issues. The police also dismissed my claim about hundreds of sets of bones, citing that no such number of people had gone missing. For a little while, I believed the words of the police, that I had suffered some kind of breakdown imagined the whole thing and cut my own foot by accident. I was asked many questions about substance abuse. After multiple drug tests turned up negative, the police let me go, and the wound in my ankle healed up after a few weeks. But, deep down, I know what I saw. Whatever it is, it replaces people, and it's learning to get better at it. Having never recovered the props I brought to that house, I finally dropped my act and embarked on a new career. I've lost weight and improved my well-being. But the memories have never fully faded, and they came to a forefront this afternoon. Two teenagers knocked at my door, handing out flyers warning about the dangers of local deforestation and encouraged me to attend an upcoming fundraiser. I could barely make out a chubby, washed-up-looking man in a car outside, presumably a parent who dropped them off. As I took a flyer from the hands of one of the teenagers, I noticed an unmistakable green glimmer in the teenager's eyes. The danger is real, he said with a smile. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. 
You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash Clancy Pasta store. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers. <laughs>